This educational series is supported by independent educational grants from the following companies. Amgen, Astellas, AstraZeneca, Bristol-Myers Squibb, Genomic Health, Merck, Pfizer Incorporated, Sanofi Genzyme, and Eurogen Pharma. Based on the documented need for additional education in prostate cancer, bladder cancer, and renal cell carcinoma, the AUA is launching a series of podcasts, the AUA Expert Exchange Podcast, discussions about managing GU cancer. These activities are designed to increase the clinician's competency in the application of new and emerging treatment options, including their mechanisms of actions and associated side effects. Today's conversation with Dr. Nitti from UCLA and Dr. Yer Lotan from UT Southwestern will be on clinical investigations in the treatment of bladder cancer. Welcome to another American Urological Association Office of Education podcast. Today's podcast is the AUA Expert Exchange, discussion about managing GU cancer. And today we'll be talking about clinical investigations in the treatment of urothelial carcinoma. It is my great pleasure to introduce my co-host, Dr. Yer Lotan. Dr. Lotan is professor and chief of urologic oncology at the University of Texas Southwestern Medical Center. Uh, also, uh, Dr. Lotan um, recently finished his stint as the uh, chair of the core curriculum committee, uh, where he really made a lot of great uh, changes and advances in the core curriculum. So for those of you who use our core curriculum, uh, much of what you see uh, was the vision of Dr. Lotan. And of course, uh, uh, we want to thank him for that. Yeah, welcome to the podcast. Great. Thank you very much. Pleasure to be here. I just want to go over a couple of learning objectives before um, we get into this. And our learning objectives today are to explain the scientific rationale for investigating immune oncology agents for BCG unresponsive disease and describe current clinical trials, and to list both completed and accruing trials that are defining the paradigms of chemotherapy and immunotherapy use in genitourinary malignancies. So we'll start with our first topic, uh, Yair. Why do, we, why do we need agents for BCG unresponsive disease, and who are these patients? Great, thank you. So um, it's very important to note that um, BCG is the primary treatment for high-risk and, and many intermediate-risk bladder cancer patients. And the reason we use BCG is that patients with high-risk non-muscle invasive bladder cancer have a 60 to 70% chance of recurring and as high as a 10 to 40% chance of progressing to muscle invasive disease or metastatic disease over a five-year period of time. And the, the goal of these intravascular therapies is to reduce uh, the risk uh, of recurrence and progression. Uh, BCG itself uh, mostly works uh, by inducing pro-inflammatory response, leading to release of interleukins and immune cells that produce additional pro-inflammatory cytokines. And response to BCG induction maintenance is around 60 to 65%. And that means that about 35 to 40% of patients will recur and become BCG unresponsive. And for those patients, uh, they have a serious decision to make because the primary recommendation right now is to remove the bladder 
Um, but most patients would prefer to keep their bladder, and in fact, their bladder will function better than any alternative that we as urologists can provide. And uh, so there's a desperate need to find new agents to treat these patients. Uh, I think it's important to note that the definition of BCG and responsiveness has been changing over the last few years and has been trying, and there's been an attempt to standardize that definition primarily to allow urologists to uh, be able to identify which patients they need to um, treat differently and also to uh, enable clinical trial enrollment. And there are three main groups that we consider BCG and responsive currently. The first is a is the most straightforward one. These are patients with persistent high-grade disease at six months, despite adequate BCG induction, which is defined as at least five out of six weeks, and another two out of three weeks of maintenance. And so if at six months you still have residual disease, you're considered BCG unresponsive. The other group that falls into this criteria are patients with recurrent high-grade papillary non-muscle invasive bladder cancer within six months of treatment, or patients with carcinoma in situ within one year of achieving, of achieving a disease-free rate following BCG. And the final group are those patients with persistent or progression to T1 disease after induction BCG. And yeah, all three I, of those groups, oh, sorry. Go ahead. And all three of those groups really are the ones that we're primarily concerned about who might need additional treatment. So I have one quick question. In the current uh, state of things where uh, some uh, are needing to use uh, reduced dosages of BCG. Um, it, are the definitions of BCG refractory the same if you were to use a reduced dose? I think it's a complicated question, primarily because it depends on, on who you talk to. Uh, there is not great evidence about uh, whether or not a reduced dose for an entire period of time is equivalent. There was a large uh, European uh, randomized trial comparing a third dose uh, for one year and comparing it to a full dose for a year and as high as a full dose for three years. Uh, really, the only difference that was found was those patients who had a third dose for one year compared to a full dose for three years in the high-risk group where there was a benefit to a full dose. Now, in the era of BCG uh, shortage, I think uh, we need to try to give a full dose of induction, but many people are reducing the dose for maintenance to try to preserve it. Uh, but whether or not we know uh, whether or not we can still use the same definition for BCG unresponsiveness is not clear. Uh, this is very important for clinical trial design, and some of the and none of the clinical trials thus far have really dictated uh, whether or not you would be eligible or not. Uh, the other issue is that many times we do uh, give a dose reduction to those patients who are having a lot of toxicity with a full dose. So that's something that's done um, by many urologists on purpose in those patients who are having a hard time uh, retaining a full dose or having a lot of side effects to it. Great. Thanks, Yair. Now, let's say we have a patient uh, who has non-muscle invasive bladder cancer. Uh, and they are BCG unresponsive by one of those three definitions um, that you just gave us. Uh, what currently, what options do we currently have uh, other than cystectomy? Right. I think, you, you know, you say other than cystectomy, I think it's important to note that the AUASGO guidelines should say that any patient should be offered a radical cystectomy and that 
clinical trials can be considered. So I think we still have to recognize that cystectomy is the best chance of cure for these patients. And you shouldn't, we shouldn't gloss over that and go straight to here are the, here are the next steps, go on trial, get, get, uh, you know, get chemotherapy or something like that. I think it's also uh, worth noting that if you've received six months of adequate BCG, giving more BCG is probably not appropriate. And, uh, and that thinking that giving a BCG or BCG with interferon really hasn't shown a benefit and there's no point giving the patient additional treatments because you are risking progression. Uh, currently, the only FDA-approved agent is valrubicin, and we know that there have been two trials with valrubicin uh, that both have shown uh, a poor uh, CR rate with only about 10% having uh, disease-free status at a year. Uh, and that's uh, right now, uh, the reason there's so many clinical trials in this space is that most urologists don't feel valrubicin is effective enough. And and more importantly, most patients don't feel it's effective enough that 90% of patients will recur within a year. Uh, recurrence is only one consideration because progression is really uh, the more dangerous thing because we know that if you initially present with non-muscle invasive disease and progress to muscle invasive disease, you'll actually have worse survival than if you had presented with muscle invasive disease in the first place. And so there are a variety of agents that are currently being tested. None of them have been FDA approved, but some of them have uh, been uh, studied fairly extensively, and they fall into a variety of categories. The one urologist probably most familiar with are intravesical chemotherapy. Uh, there are other agents that have been tested, uh, gemcitabine, docetaxel, a sequential treatment of uh, gemcitabine followed by docetaxel. And then there are some clinical trials looking at uh, chemohyperthermia and looking at nanoparticles, which are felt to maybe have better penetration. Uh, then there are immune modulators um, uh, that try to stimulate uh, interferon or interleukin uh, in the bladder. Uh, one is uh, a, a product called adskiladrin, which we'll talk about a little bit more later, I believe, um, uh, because it's gone through phase two and now uh, phase three trials. There's several uh, different products looking at stimulating uh, IL-2 and IL-15 uh, made by Altor that are being tested. Uh, there are a variety of checkpoint inhibitor trials. Uh, these are agents that are, are approved for metastatic disease and now being tested both in BCG and responsive patients and as adjuvant treatments post-cystectomy. There's various gene therapies and oncolytic viruses that are also being tested. So we hear a lot about checkpoint inhibitors in, uh, in, in treating uh, uh, advanced GU malignancies, and now we're really talking here about um, non-muscle invasive bladder cancer, but tell us a little bit about checkpoint inhibitors. First of all, how do they work and what's out there for the treatment of non-muscle invasive bladder cancer? Sure. So the checkpoint inhibitors uh, really are trying to uh, take advantage of a natural interaction between uh, T cells and normal cells in our body. And there's an interaction between uh, receptors PD1 and PDL1 that normally inhibit the function of T cells so that they do not, uh, so we don't have autoimmune reactions, right? Uh, our T cells are designed to recognize our own cells and say these are not cells that we are supposed to attack. 
And tumor cells use these, this interaction to evade immune response. And the inhibitors, the checkpoint inhibitors, the checkpoint they're talking about is interaction between PD-1 and PDL one And there are actually many other ones. They just haven't, uh, there just aren't drugs yet that have been commercialized to affect these other interactions. But there are drugs that block PD-1 or PDL one and what they do is they impede the ability of the tumor cell to, uh, to inhibit the function of T cells. This is also the reason why most of the side effects of these drugs uh, are related to inflammation. So people who get um, inflammation in the bowel can have diarrhea, patients can get uh, rashes, they can get pneumonitis, they can get some serious effects for which many times you treat them with steroids to inhibit the immune system if it gets overactivated. So there are a variety of, of these inhibitors. Uh, probably the most well-known are uh, anti-PD-1, pembrolizumab, nivolumab, uh, nivolumab, excuse me, and anti-PD-L1 are tezolizumab and, and a variety of other ones. Uh, and these uh, prevent the ability of the T cells from, um, or from the tumor cells from evading T cells. Uh, right now, these agents are really approved for patients with metastatic disease who have received platinum-based chemotherapy, uh, while atuzolizumab and pebrolizumab are also approved as first-line agents in those who are cisplatinum eligible based on various clinical trials. The problem with these drugs is that they, in the metastatic setting, probably only work at most in about 20% of patients. Uh, the reason people have try to introduce them in non-muscle invasive diseases. There are several studies that show that PD-L1 expression is associated with high-grade uh, tumors and that, um, yeah, and that intratumoral uh, lymphocytic infiltration uh, is a determinant of stage progression with the thought that the immune system is already interacting with these tumors uh, in patients, just not effectively. It's also been found that PD-L1 expression is abundant in patients with BCG-induced uh, bladder granuloma that, um, and in patients who failed um, BCG treatment or tumors that failed BCG treatment, indicating that pd one expression may facilitate progression of bladder cancer and prevent uh, the success of BCG by neutralizing T-cell responses. And all of this evidence has uh, led to several clinical trials being designed in the non-muscle invasive space for patients with BCG-unresponsive disease. Now, one of these trials that's been uh, presented is Keynote 57. This was a trial in 103 patients with BCG unresponsive disease. It was a phase two trial. They found that the three-month complete response rate was uh, around 39%. And among 40 of the patients who achieved the complete response at three months, 72% uh, maintained complete response at last follow-up, which was a median of 14 months and 80% of the patients had a complete response duration of more than six months. And I think that it's important to note that in order to get approval, the FDA has given a guidance that they're interested not only in complete response rate, but also in duration of response. And so it doesn't help a patient to have a good response at three months and then have a recurrence at six months uh, when uh, they have a long life expectancy really the goal is to achieve a long-term response. And so the FDA has really been uh, dictating that it's, that, uh, it's not enough uh, to show short-term uh, durability, but you also need to show some uh, long-term durability as well. Um, 
unfortunately, these systemic therapies have toxicity, and as many as 63% of patients uh, had uh, some level of toxicity. Uh, at grade three to four adverse events happened in about 13% of patients, uh, and unfortunately, one patient died of colitis. Uh, they were not uh, adequately treated with steroids. Um, and so it is important to note that most urologists are not familiar with giving systemic therapies, and that um, that's why medical oncologists likely will need to be involved um, at least early on until urologists become familiar, if that ever happens, uh, and that there can be some serious side effects that we're not familiar with as opposed to intravascular therapies, which usually just have uh, local responses, um, tend to be uh, more familiar with treating. Uh, there is a separate trial um, that is a swab trial testing uh, atezolizumab in BCB unresponsive disease that is currently enrolling. Um, and also, there is a multi-phase trial testing the efficacy of uh, dervolumab monotherapy in combination of BCG uh, or external beam radiation therapy. Um, so, and one looking at intravesical therapy with a checkpoint inhibitor. So there's a lot of interest in this area, and I think there's going to be a lot more additional information that's going to come out in the near future. Well, thanks, Jair. Is there anything else uh, other than checkpoint inhibitors that's currently under investigation uh, for non-muscle invasive bladder cancer? Sure. Uh, so as we mentioned earlier, uh, because BCG works in immune therapy, there's interest in other ways of uh, manipulating the immune system. Uh, it's been recognized interferon alpha uh, has an anti-proliferative effect on tumors as an immune modulator. And people have studied uh, intravascular BCG in addition to interferon in BCG-naive patients, uh, but there was no clear difference uh, in recurrence compared to BCG alone. And the lack of efficacy was thought that uh, possibly due to insufficient or non-sustained concentration in the urine. Um, and the thought was, you know, just giving it for a short period of time, one or two hours installation was not gonna be uh, good enough. And there was an adenovirus that was developed uh, that uh, main goal was to transduce interferon into cancer cells. Uh, this led, uh, there was some uh, um, promising phase one data, and it led to a randomized phase two trial where 40 patients uh, with high-grade BCG refractory non-muscle invasive bladder cancer received two different dosages of um, this, uh, this uh, virus, um, and, uh, which is um, commercially known as Instildren, um, and uh, it's basically a virus that um, has, is combined with SYN3, which allows better uh, transfection to cells. And um, this phase two trial, which has been published at 12 months, showed a 35% uh, recurrence-free survival. Uh, and this was uh, actually found um, to be effective in both doses. And based on that, a phase three trial uh, was uh, opened and actually completed enrollment and likely will be uh, presented later on this year. Um, and this is a registry trial uh, with the hope of uh, getting this uh, approved at the FDA level. 
Yeah, uh, one thing that comes to my mind is you know, with the, the current BCG shortage and given the fact that um, a reasonable number of patients with high-risk non-muscle invasive bladder cancer will recur or progress despite getting BCG, has there been any thought given to or are there any trials ongoing that sort of skip the BCG phase and go directly to an alternative therapy? Um, I'm not aware of, of trials in BCG naive patients. There are several trials that are being de designed um, to uh, give combination in patients who at three months did not show a complete response. So the current recommendation is that if at three months you have a patient with uh, persistent carcinoma in situ after just induction BCG, is to continue to give additional BCG at that time point. And um, because there's still about a 30 to 40% response. And the thought is that maybe if you added an agent at that point, um, then uh, to the BCG, that that would be more effective than BCG alone and that you could increase the response from 30 to 40% higher. Uh, there has been interest in trying, because of the BCG shortage, to introduce something uh, in, that, uh, in that space, but it's very difficult because the typical way the trial design works is that you use a treatment in the setting where the standard of care does not work. And right now, because valbrubicin is working so poorly, in the BCG unresponsive area, there is there's essentially a consensus that there is no good standard of care, and that is why all the clinical trials are focused in this area. In order to move the treatments up to either BCG refractory or BCG naive, you really need to show at a minimum equivalence to BCG, uh, and that would, you know, that would require a very large randomized trial for those BCG naive patients. Uh, the FDA has not necessarily said that that's you know, something that they're willing to accept. And um, and again, that, that's a, a risky trial design for a company. I should point out, though, that um, that there is a large SWOG trial, SWOG 1602, that um, is currently comparing the current Thai strain of BCG to the Tokyo strain of BCG with a third arm, which is actually quite interesting, where people get a subcutaneous BCG vaccination, and three weeks later, uh, get BCG because there's evidence that patients who have had prior uh, exposure to BCG had a better response. And this was data from Europe where BCG vaccination uh, was relatively common. Um, and, um, and so this trial is trying to see whether or not priming the immune system with a BCG vaccine uh, will actually enhance the response. And the hope is also that it will show equivalence to the Tokyo strain, which may allow another strain to be used in the U.S., uh, which hopefully will alleviate uh, the shortage. But however, this is going to take time and, and won't help in the short term. Uh, but uh, the goal is in the long term, hopefully, not to have the same problems. Um, there are currently people who off, off trial are using sequential chemotherapy. Uh, there's a protocol that's uh, being used by Mike O'Donnell and, and Jim McKiernan and Columbia and, and University of Iowa of sequential chemotherapy. Um, 
of gemcitabine and docetaxel, and that may be an alternative, uh, but I, I would caution people that as long as they can get BCG, uh, that is still the standard of care and the preferred treatment for patients with uh, high-grade bladder cancer. Yeah, well, I, I find it fascinating because when we look at uh, bladder cancer, it's the one GU malignancy where uh, there's a lot going on for the treatment of uh, disease that's still localized. And of course, we know that uh, uh, when non-muscle invasive bladder cancer progresses, it, it can be awful for patients. Uh, but um, it, is, it is fascinating to me that uh, all of this uh, work is being done uh, for localized disease and bladder preservation when we in urology are so used to seeing uh, chemotherapy and immune therapy used for more uh, advanced uh, cancers. So it, uh, it will be interesting to see how this evolves. I think it's great uh, that there is all this uh, research going on to uh, um, treat our patients, uh, improve quality of life ultimately if we can avoid a cystectomy and, and keep people with, uh, with their bladders. Uh, uh, at least for some, that's gotta be a good thing. So yeah, I wanna thank you so much for, uh, for taking this time uh, to do this podcast with us and giving us all this uh, really great new information. I wanna thank uh, our audience for listening. Uh, and as always, uh, for more information, you can visit us at auanet.org uh, backslash university. Thank you. Great. Thank you very much.